Bees play a vital role in our food supply. They pollinate nearly three quarters of the plants that produce 90% of the world's food. But at the same time, bees are facing a lot of challenges. They're facing habitat loss, climate change, pesticides, and more. We need to save the bees. Bee conservationists, like our guest today, are working diligently to do just that. This is Sounds Good. I'm Brandon Harvey. I am joined today by Sarah Red Laird, the founder and executive director of the Bee Girl Organization out of Ashland, Oregon. Sarah's nonprofit works to educate and inspire communities to conserve bees and their flowers through habitat research and education programs. And I loved getting to sit down with Sarah to talk about why bees are so important. I truly came in knowing nothing. What kinds of challenges bees are facing? And lastly, most importantly, how anyone can take some really simple action steps to save bee populations. It was a great conversation. I learned a lot. So without any further ado, let's just jump straight into it. Sarah, I am so excited to be talking with you today. To be honest, I know nothing about bees <laughs> except for how many times I got stung as a child. And so I'm so excited to be talking with you and to get to learn from you today. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for having me. I am very inspired by your ability to easily seek out good news and good things. And I am an honored to be a part of this project and this podcast. It's funny because I feel like so much of the time, like I, I know my way around a lot of different types of nonprofits. I know my way around a lot of different issues and causes, but something that I have not like paid that much attention to, and I really should have been, it's been a blind spot, is the world of like bees. Like, <laughs> and I like pay attention to big animals. I pay attention to food, but like, like bees intersect with so much. And so I'm excited to like get into all that, but maybe we should start off with you know, a little bit of backstory on you and how you got into this world because you've been in the world of bees for a long time. How did you get into beekeeping and where did your interest in bees start? I think my interest probably started when I got stung <laughs> as a little <laughs> kid. And I know most people that that is the one uh, experience that most people have with bees. And so it, it's complicated because people now there's quite an awareness around bees and that bees are in trouble and they need help. And so people are feeling a sympathy and a compassion towards them that they never had before. Because when I first started this work about 10 years ago, really like when I would table or work in the public or talk to people about bees, all I got was stinging stories and I, Oh, I hate bees. <laughs> and that is really transformed to um, a very beautiful uh, awareness around bees and their issues and and also just a curiosity about them like uh, you are currently having. And so my first experience started with curiosity. When I got stung, I was blown away and I couldn't believe that something so small could be so powerful and pack such a punch and that just created this lifelong fascination with these teeny little fuzzy charismatic mini fauna that were also so incredibly powerful and inspiring to me. And then I also 
honestly was absolutely obsessed with the book and the movie Fried Green Tomatoes when I was mm. a kid. And Iggy Threadgood was my personal hero and probably still is. And she was the bee charmer who could go up to a hive and pull honey out of a tree. And I just wanted to grow up to be her. And <laughs> just a social justice warrior slash honey taker of trees, <laughs> honeycomb taker outer from trees. And, um, yeah, I think I carried that fascination and that curiosity until I found from the back of a pint of ice cream, haagen honey ice cream, that all of the bees were dying from this mysterious thing called colony mm. collapse disorder back in about 2007, 2008. And as Glennon Doyle's work often is like to follow your heartbreak to... Uh, really dig deep into that. And I feel that that's what I did there. I was so moved and so heartbroken that I knew I needed to do something about it. So I just started shifting my focus in that direction. And it was always just kind of there. And when I decided I wanted to go back to school and finish up my degree, I knew I wanted to work in conservation and uh, resource conservation. And as I was looking at colleges to go to I found that University of Montana in Missoula had a honeybee lab and they offered a position in the lab as work study. And I was like, oh, well, then that's obviously where I have to go. <laughs> <laughs> and so all signs pointed to Missoula. And then I, I got a position in the lab and loved it. And when I graduated, it was in 2010 and there were no jobs in conservation or anything else. We were in the middle of a recession and we were in the middle of uh, the Tea Party having taken over the budget in Congress and axing anything that had to do with climate change. And that's where a lot of my work was kind of focused. And so I just had to rethink what I wanted to do when I grew up. Um, and the B-Lab loved having me around and dug up some money to offer me a full-time position as a research assistant. And the rest is history, as they say. That was 2009, 2009-2010. I decided to create my own little nonprofit to work on what I found and saw needed to be done and just kind of thought that that would be something I would do to get me through the recession. But it's been 10 years now. And <laughs> I am currently working my dream job. It couldn't be any better. I love every day. And so, yeah, that's the long of it. <laughs> I love that. And can I just say, I really appreciate the fact that it, began and your catalyst was this heartbreak, you know, for, well, the first heartbreak was perhaps getting stung by a bee, but then the, the bigger heartbreak was, you know, seeing this piece of bad news about something that you cared about and knowing that you had to do something. You could have run from that heartbreak or you could have closed yourself off enough from the bad news that you wouldn't pay attention to it. But by remaining open to the pain, feeling it all the way through and then saying, I, I have to do something about this because I care about it. It brought you all the way here. And then I also love the fact that we talked a little bit before we started recording and, you know, the B-Girl, it sounds like the organization started off as a small short-term project and then it just continued. And I think that's, there's something really special about like when you just show up to do some work to, and you show up to solve a problem you never know 
what it's going to lead to. And, and if you had gone in saying, I'm going to create this incredible organization with all these people and all these facets, that's super unattainable in the beginning. But by just sticking with it, like that's what it became. And so starting small and, and being driven by that heartbreak is so powerful. Yeah. And I, I have a very hard time with watching suffering, especially mm. if it's something that is, I don't want to say voiceless because I think bees very much do have a voice. They just don't speak English. <laughs> but I just felt like, oh my gosh, like this is a thing. Like I need to be there for them. <laughs> I need to help these creatures. Like I can't just stand by while they all die. And I don't know what that looks like or how I'm going to pull this off or, but I need to dive into the situation and I need to learn everything that I possibly can so I can figure out how I can help. And honestly, in my first few months of working in the lab, it became extraordinarily apparent to me as to what was going on and how it could be helped. And I felt like there wasn't enough translation from academia into the normal people world. And I felt like we were, you know, at the time, as has been for a long time, honeybees are the most studied insect on the planet. But the rest of the world doesn't know the things that are being discovered in academia. Nobody reads the journal science. <laughs> like that's not a thing that you have on your table unless you work in academia. And uh, it's just totally inaccessible. No one can afford a subscription. Normal people <laughs> cannot afford a subscription to the journal Nature or the journal Science. On, and so they don't know what's going on or how to help. And so that was the first thing I identified was, wow, like we are discovering some very interesting things here in academia. And we do a press release and we get on the news and there's a couple of magazine newspaper articles written about us, but in our work, but then we move on to the next thing. And I just felt like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Like, what are we doing to teach people about this and talk to people about what they can do in their everyday life to help our bees? And how are we reaching kids so we can get people on the right path from the very beginning? And we did do a two-day kids camp um, through the Osher Lifelong Learning Institute that was like this really super fun summer camp with grandparents and their grandkids. And it was like this whole aha moment. I was like, this is... I need to do this every day. Like everyone needs to wow. do this every day. Like we need to be working with uh, just the light that I saw turn on in these kids when we were working with them and the curiosity that the fascination from these uh, bees that sting and the, you know, there's like a fearfulness and that's so easy. That's such a strong emotion, fear. And it's so easy to just push people right over that line into fascination and love, um, especially kids. And so I was like, this is just the thing that has to be done. <laughs> and then I also saw through our research that um, I were done pesticide research and I was like, man, like pesticides are a problem, but it's not just the pesticide. It is the landscape system. It is how we are farming. It is how we're eating food. It is how farm policy is working. That is basically enabling a system of abuse <laughs> for our landscape. And our bees are included in the landscape. People are included in the landscape. Our waterways, our fish, our soil are included in that landscape. And I read a lot of Wendell Berry, and he has been speaking to this since the 60s and 70s. And I just reread the Sand County Almanac by Aldo Leopold. And he is speaking to all of this 
decades, decades, decades ago. So there's been a lot of knowledge about this for a long time, but I'm feeling like it's coming to the surface, which is wonderful. And I, and I just am hoping to use, utilize bees and uh, the fascination that people have with them to just start talking about these landscape-wide issues that we have in agriculture and everything that's downstream of agriculture. So those were the things that I saw right away. And so when I started Bee Girl, I just started with what I had, which was knowledge about how to keep bees alive. <laughs> and that's what I could offer to the world. And that's what the world wanted was hobbyist beekeeping and backyard beekeeping had become really popular. And I was like, okay, so this is my foot in the door. So over the first few years, I taught beekeeping classes and I worked one-on-one with beekeepers and I tabled at every county fair and different event that I could get to, to talk to people about bees and the importance of bees and beekeeping. And so that's how it started. And then, but in, in my heart of hearts, I always wanted to work with kids and I always wanted to work on landscape conservation issues and sustainable and now regenerative farming. And so, which is, it can be as simple as reducing the amount of pesticides that you're putting on the landscape and increasing the amount of flower diversity that you put on the landscape. So that is currently my work and what I get to do every day. So fascinating. And I love this journey. Again, just starting you know, small with what was in front of you and then allowing that to pivot and change and holding loosely to it over time. I want to get into some of the nitty gritty, and you've already alluded to it, about what the problems facing bees are. But first, I feel like it'd be helpful to just talk about what is so important about bees. You know, one key aspect of this, of course, is just, you know, the connection that you and you know the children you've worked with, the communities you've worked with, the connection that you've created with bees and just almost like a relational way. But what about like just the almost like the selfish ways that like bees are good for us, bees are helpful, bees are important? Yeah. Well thank you for picking that up because that's usually the last thing that I talk about <laughs> is that because it's kind of a, an odd thing to talk about is like, like really for me, my benefit from working with bees is the this like kind of otherworldly spiritual connection that I have with them, which is something that humans have had with bees for thousands of years. Bees are mentioned in every religious text. Honeybees and humans have a very, very long and very fascinating relationship. And I know many, many people who have been able to heal PTSD and complex PTSD from beekeeping. So I think that there's like this really cool, like (laughs) uh, sixth sense additional plane thing there with bees. Um, And so that's my personal, one of my whys for working with bees. But on the whole, bees feed us. Honeybees pollinate one out of every three bites of food that we eat and drink in the US and North America. And there's, I think, around 200 different crops that they pollinate. And they also pollinate cotton. So I guarantee every person listening has something on them that is cotton. Or they're sitting on a chair that is cotton. Or not only do bees pollinate food, but they pollinate, you know, cotton directly. And then they also pollinate my work currently. Um, my biggest project is improving pasture Um, for grazing livestock animals. And um, alfalfa is currently the feed for dairy cattle and bees, not honeybees, but leafcutter bees pollinate alfalfa. So, you know, you can even thank your bees for ice cream, (laughs) even though it seems like a stretch. And I just, I did a, um, a little campaign with a local organic ice cream company for Earth Day. And it was lemon cookie, honey ice cream. 
And oh my gosh, that sounds so good. Oh my gosh, it's amazing. And I went through the label and I was like, wow, I can actually, except for the the wheat and the cookies, like I can relate every single thing here back to bees and bee pollination. So I think that's the most important thing that they do is, and you know, there are landscapes that don't have honeybees that have um, a very different diet than we do in the U.S., and don't rely as heavily on bee pollination as we do. So it's not like this is a completely universal thing. I'm thinking about like indigenous community. I grew up partly in Alaska and thinking about indigenous communities up in the northern regions of Alaska. Of course, honeybees don't pollinate whale fat. (laughs) So just calling out that it's not like a completely universal thing and we will survive without bees. There's a misquoted quote, to Albert Einstein that goes around saying if honeybees fell off the face of the earth, humans would cease to exist in less than four years, mm. which is not true because just our diets would get very boring and we mm. would probably have some nutritional disease because in the, in especially the Western world, we are used to a rainbow of flavors and vitamins and minerals and, and foods in our diet and, and our honeybees pollinate most of that rainbow. So many of the foods that have the highest density of vitamins, minerals, color, flavors, those are your bee pollinated foods. Fascinating. Okay. So what I'm understanding is the connection that we have with bees and the ways that they make our lives more colorful, literally. Um, <laughs> so what is happening to the bees and what are the you know the ramifications of what's happening with the bees then? Yeah, it's so complex, which I'm learning to become friends with because... I love that. I, um, you know, we want everything to be simple. It's, humans want everything to be very simple and very answerable and like a checklist of like, these are the problems, these are so the solutions. And I think that there is some of we can, you know, point to some specifics for sure, but um, nature is complex and bees are complex. And so the idiom, all the bees are dying, there is some truth. And then there's some complexity to that because we do honeybee losses. So there's a, the Bee Informed Partnership organizes a honeybee loss survey every year. Um, But it's a, self-reporting survey. The majority of people that answer it are hobbyist beekeepers. There are commercial beekeepers that are um, involved with the Bee Informed Partnership and, and giving really great data. We need to remember that honeybees are a domesticated animal. <laughs> They're a domesticated wild animal. Mm. And they very much, um, you know, we've kept them for hundreds and hundreds of years. In the U.S. at least, like the majority of the different strains of bees or lines, genetic lines of bees that we have are very reliant on humans to take care of them. And honeybees are not native to the United States. Honey, The honeybees that we keep here in the U.S. are native to Europe. So already we're tinkering with nature <laughs> by even having honeybees here. But also the vast majority of foods that we enjoy are also non-native to the United States. And so we have to have this non-native bees to pollinate all these non-native foods. Like lemons are not native to the United States. Most of the foods that we enjoy uh, on a daily basis are not native to the United States. So it's, like I said, it's complex. So the, the bee losses that we see are very real. The colony collapse, the hive losses, I believe it's because of the situations that we are putting the bees in. So 
oftentimes, you know, I hear every time I go in public, which is not often these days, but <laughs> I was just at a winery last week and the the vineyard manager, owner, and winemaker was like, oh, I'm so, I was so inspired by the last time you were here and your passion for bees and bee habitat that I got a hive and they died. And then I started again and then they died. And I was like, yeah, because <laughs> you have to take care of them and you have to know what they're doing. Mm. You just go get a horse because you were worried about horses. Like you wouldn't just go get a polar bear for your backyard because you heard the polar bears were dying. <laughs> you have to understand that bees are, they're, you know, they're classified as livestock and they need care and they need, uh, they need management. And so for most of the bees that I know that die in a hobbyist or a backyard beekeeper's yard, it's because of mismanagement. They're not uh, fed or taken care of or, you know, checked for pests or diseases the way that they should be. And then on the landscape scale, the agricultural scale, it's oftentimes we are putting them into very unhospitable environments that are drenched in pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, and lack of diversity of floral resources or food. They need a diverse array of vitamins and minerals from flowers themselves and my current research is looking at soil health and how soil health could affect bee health. So it's complex, but um, our honeybees are struggling. But then we also need to be thinking about our native bees because we do have four, at least 4,000 different species of native bees in the U.S. that also pollinate our food and that pollinate wildflowers that turn into berries and nuts that feed grizzly bears and songbirds and everything in between. So, and no one is taking care of them and no one is giving them medicine or extra food. And so it's up to them to survive climate change and um, pesticide over application and both in urban communities. I mean, I, I don't um, mean to sound like it's all on, on agriculture because actually the vast majority of pesticide overuse is in our lawns and gardens and golf courses and such things. And so, um, so we have to be thinking about our native bees too, as we apply yard chemicals and mow dandelions and clovers and the things that sustain our native bees. So if we were to consolidate down this problem that we're experiencing with the bees, with this kind of idea of like hashtag save the bees, are we talking about native bees? Are we talking about honeybees? Are we talking about, you know, the bees in people's backyards? Like what is the specific problem that we're talking about? That way we know exactly what solutions we're talking about as well. Like, yeah, great question. I think that when people hashtag save the bees, they're thinking about honeybees probably because that's the bee that humans have a connection with. That's mm. the bees. They make honey for us, which is a delicious human food. They're the only... They're the only insect that produces a commercially viable food product, unless you're into eating crickets. But <laughs> I'm not there yet, but, but maybe one day. <laughs> but I guess crickets kind of, I guess you could say they produce their body, but they don't really, honeybees produce this delicious, sweet, yes. gorgeous a good distinction. food for us. And so people think of honeybees, but I would like to, to have people also think of native bees. I would love for people to go into their backyard and find three new types of bees that they didn't know existed before. Try really hard to understand the difference between a honeybee and a bumblebee, and then look for two additional bees that you might think are 
flies in your backyard. And there's even a, um, a book called Bees in Your Backyard that will help you understand and identify the different bees that you might have in your backyard. So I think that that's first, like, let's just educate ourselves about, about the different bees that are out there and the different services that they provide. And there are bees beyond honeybees. And I'm a beekeeper. I'm a beekeeper first. I'll always be a beekeeper. I love the beekeeping the, the community, the people that I know who are beekeepers, but there are so many more bees out there that need our attention and our love. And so, so the real problems, if I could distill it down to the essence is there are not enough flowers and there are too many chemicals mm, in our landscapes. And that means in our front yards, and that means in our peripheries of our towns and our edges, our parks, our golf courses. And that also means in our agricultural landscapes and in agricultural, I'm thinking of cultivated crops. And then I'm also thinking of our grazing lands. I think that we could be grazing our, the vast majority of land in the United States. The largest land use in the United States is actually our grazing and pasture lands. And I think that we could graze in a different way to encourage more uh, growth of flowers that would help our bees. And that's a whole nother podcast. But if you want to look into that, that is called regenerative or holistic grazing. Fascinating. I love when we're able to get into like something really nerdy or like specific. And then everybody who's like, this is me, this is me is going to like have this whole new keyword to Google and to research. <laughs> so I thank you for that. <laughs> yeah. But even like, so um, that's my work is working with farmers and ranchers to get more flowers and more flower diversity and less chemicals on the agricultural landscape. If you would like to join in in that work, donate to our organization, bgirl.org slash donate. Yes. And the community's work is to plant more flowers or to just let flowers exist. So uh, it's currently no mow May. <laughs> and one of the vineyards that I'm working with, one of the first things that we did together was totally change the mowing program in the vineyard. So they are just not mowing until it gets really dry and creates some sort of a fire hazard. And it is amazing the amount of common lawn flowers that are blooming today versus blooming this time last year when they still had a really intensive mowing program. It is a pollinator paradise out there right now because of the dandelions and the clovers and the lawn daisies and these really super common free flowers <laughs> that just want to grow in your yard anyways and your lawn anyways and by just cutting out mowing for just a month. Just don't do it for a month and see what happens. And then there was also these purple dead nettles, which is a, a native flower, which is extraordinarily important to bump queen bumblebees coming out of their nest first thing. So that they we didn't know were there before. And they finally were given the chance to emerge this year. So yeah, just simply, it can be as easy. It's just not mowing your lawn or 
writing to your city council and asking them not to mow parks and meridians until the dandelions go to seed and don't spray the dandelions with Roundup. You know, it can be just that simple as not doing something or you can just take action and do something. You can plant sunflowers. There's, I'm involved in this project called the One Flower Project and you can order a little packet of educational materials and uh, seeds to plant flowers, plant sunflowers for your bees. And there's people all around the country now that are planting like sunflowers just in pots on their front porch or their front stoop or the, uh, the window of their apartment building. Planting a sunflower is something that is an easy action that could have real effects. It is absolutely for two reasons. A, you're feeding bees and B, you're engaging with nature. You're so excited to go out and watch your sunflower and wait for it to bloom and then see who comes to visit. And that's a really good place to actually find what native bees might be in your backyard because there's a plethora of bees that are interested in sunflowers, not just honeybees. We are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, Sarah is sharing some super simple action steps that anyone can take to save the bees. Sounds Good is sponsored by Libro FM. And I like to use these ads sometimes to just talk about the audiobooks that I am loving right now. And for me, this month, this episode, I've got to tell you about Seth Rogen's new audio memoir comedy. It's called Yearbook. It just came out and I downloaded it. I'd seen some hype. I was not expecting to love it this much. I fell in love with this man. I was laughing out loud in my house while I was doing chores. I loved this book. And Here's why this book is best as an audiobook, because he put some secret sauce into this. The audio cast, he brought together a bunch of friends to basically do voices of some of the characters that he brings into this book. It's a memoir. It's his true story of his life. But he's bringing on his celebrity friends like Nick Kroll, Jay Farrow, Jason Segel, uh, Tommy Chong, Billy Idol. He's bringing all these people on board to do the voices. And it is so fun and so delightful and so unique. Why am I bringing this up? Well, because Libro FM is the company that lets you support a local bookstore every time you download an audiobook. Here is how it works. Libro FM members get one audiobook credit per month for $14.99. You can get literally any book you want with that credit. It is such a sweet deal, especially because so many of the books are more than $14.99. And then when you download audiobooks through Libra FM, you are helping support a local bookstore of your choosing. You're helping keep money within your local economy. You're creating local jobs. You're making a difference in your community. And the amazing thing is, as a special offer for Sounds Good listeners, and yes, it's truly a special offer you can't just get anywhere. Libro FM is offering two audiobooks for the price of one with your first month of membership with the code GOOD. All you have to do is visit the website Libro.fm. That's L-I-B-R-O O.fm, And use the promo code GOOD to get started with two free audiobooks. I recommend one of them being Yearbook by Seth Rogen, but it doesn't have to be. And to help support your community and to help support this show. 
All right, so we have a new sponsor this week. I'm so excited about this. Sounds Good is sponsored by Bev. Now, Bev is a woman-owned and run canned wine brand on a mission to give a voice to women in an industry that has ignored them at best and objectified them at worst. This one's for the ladies and the good dudes who are doing it right, which is which is our community, basically. <laughs> they have four varietals. They've got Rosé, Soft Blanc, Pinot Gris, Pinot Noir. They also have Glitz, which is their sparkling wine, which is only available to Bev Club subscribers, which is a whole other thing that you could join. It's very cool. All of their wines are crisp. They're dry. They're a little fizzy, which is super refreshing and delicious. I personally have always been a Pinot Noir fan, big fan of their Pinot Noir. And here's the amazing thing about Bev. All of their wines are zero sugar with just three carbs and 100 calories per serving. And also, the cans may look cute and tiny and definitely, you know, go to their website, check out what they look like. They're so cute. But each can is a glass and a half of wine, which is perfect for when you don't want to just open a whole bottle of wine for yourself. One 24-pack of Bev is equal to eight bottles of wine. So we worked out this special deal with Bev for Sounds Good podcast listeners to get 20% off your first purchase. Plus, you get free shipping on all orders. If you're new to Bev, I highly suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack. That sounded so weird coming out. Their Ladies' Night Variety Pack so that you can try their delicious varietals. Just go to drinkbev.com and use the code GOOD20 at checkout to claim the deal and to help support this podcast. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com using the promo code GOOD20 at checkout to get some delicious wine from Bev and to help support Sounds Good. Okay, so Sarah, I'm listening to you talk about the bees. You're kind of making me fall in love with bees here. And I want to do some good for the bees in my community and just across the country, across the world. And so I know that you've got four action steps that anybody listening and myself can take to make a difference for bees. So tell me, what is the first action step that all of us can take? Well, you can think about the difference that you want to make in the world three times a day or four times, however many times a day you eat. <laughs> you can think about uh, you can think about the world and how you want the world to look and how you want the world to look for bees by voting with your fork. Mm. So you can choose to make a positive difference in your community and in the lives of your bees by supporting, by eating seasonally and supporting your local farmers through a local food co-op, local farm shops, um, visit the farmer's market, find a local CSA, and really seek out those farmers who are farming organically, farming regeneratively, reducing or eliminating their use of chemicals on the landscape. And then also those farmers that provide extra habitat for our bee species and are thinking about pollinators and what they do. And that's another advantage of going to the farmer's market is you can strike up conversations with farmers and just ask like, hey, like, do you have additional flowers on your fields for bees? 
do you host honeybees at your farm? And, you know, don't do it in a splainy way where you're like, (laughs) this is what you need to do, but just be curious and ask the question and show them that that's what their customer base is wanting is a farm that cares about pollinators beyond just for pollination services, but, you know, really for the good of the hive, for the good of the colony, for the good of the different pollinator species that are around. And so voting with your fork and then also vote with your vote. (laughs) And that can look really different on different levels. So in your local city, in your region, if there's candidates coming up for mayor, candidates for the school board, candidates coming up for the uh, city council, show up to city halls and ask them, what are your plans for making the city more bee friendly? Would you be interested in working towards eliminating pesticides on local golf courses and creating buffer strips with flowers for bees? You know, what about schools? Like, would you be interested in having a school garden and planting flowers, having specific intentional places around the campuses with flowers for, for our pollinators? And then also, you know, and then that goes to the same questions, you know, on the state level and on the national level, my questions right now to our electeds are, how can we support farmers and ranchers with money and education to help them farm more ecologically and regeneratively. And then that person's going to get my vote. And then of course, always taking it back to planting flowers through ordering a seed pack through one flower project, or just researching what are the really super beneficial native flowers in your area that your native bees will love. And then last is number four would be to make a space in your heart um, for our bees and, you know, base that in curiosity and then and follow that curiosity and learn more about your local beekeepers, learn more about the native bees that you have in your backyard, learn more about the different flowers that you can plant, like really just create a space for curiosity and a space for love for our bees because, we cannot conserve something unless it's intentional and we cannot be intentional about something unless we love it. And so I really do encourage people to just sit with that for a minute and and really generate some love in your heart for our bees. This is so helpful. And I just want to reiterate these four action steps. The first is vote with your fork. The second is Ask for good honeybee policy. You know, make elected officials create systemic change that makes a difference on a deeper level. Number three is plant flowers. You know, you, you do it in your yard. Maybe sneak some into a neighbor's yard. I don't know. I didn't say that. <laughs> and then number four, make space in your heart. Show some love so that that love can motivate action and create change. This is so helpful, Sarah. And I guess... As a final question to wrap up this conversation, what makes you feel hopeful about the state of bees and the progress we're making? Like, What keeps you motivated and helps you feel hopeful and will, will hopefully allow others to feel hopeful as well? Well, you make me feel hopeful, Brandon. <laughs> it's <laughs> your, it's your, you know, like in this moment, it's your curiosity and your interest in bees and what's actually going on with bees and wanting to share that with your audience. 
that gives me hope that there, we in the bee industry, we keep kind of joking about like, oh, when is our 15 minutes going to be up? Because we've been in the spotlight since 2007. And we just keep thinking like, you know, last year when the world blew up, I was like, who's going to care about bees in the middle of a racial reckoning? Who's going to care about bees in the middle of the most brutal election year we've ever had? And people just still keep caring about bees. (laughs) And because it is all connected and it is all, it does all just come from, you know, like if we could shift our mindset into more of abundance and generosity mentality, then there is room for all of it. You know, there's room for social justice and environmental justice because they really are the same things. And so people's continuing interest in my work and in bees and what's going on with bees and what are the problems and what are the solutions is the thing that gives me hope every day. And anytime I start feeling like, oh my gosh, like this work is so overwhelming and I'm all by myself and nobody see the wor- sees the world like I see the world, then someone like you comes out of the woodwork and with just genuine curiosity and interest in love and your heart for wanting to understand and know more about bees and what's going on with bees. And that's what gives me hope. That's Sarah Red Laird, the founder and executive director of the Bee Girl Organization. You can learn more, make a donation, and check out other ways to make a difference on the Bee Girl's website, beegirl.org. Truly, if you make a donation, it will make a huge difference in support of bees. And also, those other action steps that are listed on our site are so cool. It's a great way to make a difference. We've included the link in the show notes. You should also totally follow Sarah Bee Girl on Instagram. That's her username to keep up with all of her beekeeping and conservation efforts. This podcast was created by Good Good Good. At Good Good Good, we help you feel more hopeful and do more good. You can find more good news and ways to make a difference, whether it is bees or Israel and Palestine, in our weekly email newsletter, our beautiful print good newspaper, or online at goodgoodgood.co. This episode was created by Kaylee Thompson, Megan Burns, and me, Brandon Harvey. It was edited and sound designed by the team at Sound On Studios, and you can find their website at soundonsoundoff.com. Make sure to hit the follow button wherever you listen to podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or you know the cool app that only you use. And of course, tell a friend as well. We love reaching new people who care about celebrating good news and becoming good news. So send your favorite episode to your friend who's always trying to make a difference or you're always learning something from. We would love to hang out with them too. And with that, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Go out and take one action step to save the bees. And we'll be back next week with more good news and good action. Sound good?